Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As a child, I remember going camping with my family at the Great Sand Dunes National Park in Colorado. And in the quiet of a late May night, I lay on my back on a picnic table and gazed up at the Milky Way, the stars strewn across the sky. And I remember thinking, this is God's country. Surely this is God's land. But God's country, God's kingdom is less about some geographic reality and more about how we as people of faith live in the world. Today's scripture that Tom just read for us is based on a central question of faith. What is the kingdom of heaven like? What does God's reign look like? How, how does it come about? Every week, every single week, we come together as people of faith and we pray words taught to the disciples by Jesus. A prayer that talks about God's kingdom, not as some far-off extraterrestrial or celestial reality, but as a concrete reality that exists here on earth. Every week we pray the words, God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I moved from Colorado Springs where I would see the sun set behind the mountains, causing them to glow, knowing that that was God's country, to Salem, Massachusetts when I was eight years old. For me, I was a little skeptical about this congested seaside city, but I felt certain that it was not God's country, contrary to what the early settlers or the pilgrims thought, because they labeled it as God's country. Moving there, I had no idea what a big deal Thanksgiving was in New England congregational churches where to this day, folks dress in woolen garb with big square buckles and strange hats for annual reenactments that seem to happen on every single town green. Generations of families gathering, grandparents and parents and little babies dressed as those first settlers, the pilgrims, our denominational ancestors who fled the tyranny of religious oppression to seek a country where they could practice their puritanical religion in peace. John Winthrop, one of the early leaders of this motley crew, those to-be congregationalists, was always quoted at these annual gatherings. His famous sermon preached on the Mayflower, read and recited in white-steepled churches all up and down the eastern seaboard. Winthrop, unsure of what lay ahead for these people, but knowing the hardship that they had experienced and had experienced in the crossing of the Atlantic, he also held on to hope and promise of this new land. Winthrop counseled the pilgrims to follow the ways of the prophet Micah, 
to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. He notes that all is done not for the good of one individual, but for the good of the community. In his sermon, he says this, For this end, we must be knit together in this work as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves for the supply of others' needs. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. So we will keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Winthrop not only felt that God was watching his people as they settled into this new land and figured out what was next, but Winthrop believed that the pilgrims could be an example. He famously said, for we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are on us. And he ends his sermon with this quote from Moses. He says, Beloved, there is now set before us life and death, good and evil. Winthrop goes on, in that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God, to love one another, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his ordinances and his laws and the articles of our covenant to him that we may live and be multiplied, and that the Lord may bless us in this land. But if our hearts shall turn away, he says, so that we will not obey, but shall be seduced and worship other gods, our pleasure and our profit, and serve them, it is propounded to us that this day we shall surely perish out of the good land, whether we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Therefore, let us choose life, he says that we see and we may live by obeying God's voice and cleaving to God. For God is our life and our prosperity. I'm struck by the relevance of that sermon, of those words, of, of the question of what it means to live in community with each other, what it means to hope and love and mourn and share and work and sometimes suffer with each other but to choose life and love that God calls us to. Winthrop was convinced that he and all those landing at Plymouth had a holy task. They were building God's kingdom. They were building God's country. There's so much that can be gleaned from the passage today in Matthew, these little vignette parables that Tom read for us. But it is especially noteworthy how Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Jesus could have used stories of power and privilege to describe God's kingdom. The parable could have been, God's kingdom is like a giant army. Or, God's kingdom is like a royal palace. Or, God's kingdom is like... Fill in the blank. It's also interesting that Jesus doesn't look back 
to describe what God's kingdom is. He doesn't go to the good old days. Jesus doesn't describe the promised land that was given to Moses, a land flowing of milk and honey. For Jesus knows that the promised land isn't what was, but what will be. I wonder what else Jesus could have said then about what the kingdom of heaven looked like. I wonder what modern day equivalences Jesus would use now. Instead of using parables of privilege or being stuck in the past, Jesus tells of the tiny and the ordinary actually being extraordinary. Jesus tells of simple, hard-working people helping to bring about God's kingdom, of a sower in a field planting a mustard seed, of a woman baker mixing yeast and flour. Jesus tells of folks willing to risk everything that they currently have when something precious was discovered. Sometimes it's something thought or sought, as in the merchant with the pearl. And sometimes it's something stumbled across, as with the treasure in the field. But always it's recognized and it's cherished. And then, of course, there's the hardworking fisherman, who I imagine going out day after day, casting his net. And then this one day, throwing his net to the sea, and I can only imagine the ways that he pulled and struggled to bring in the, the weight of this hull. This is God's kingdom. This is God's country. This is God's country, said the rancher that I met in Wyoming, <laughs> a living example of a Marlboro man, horseback on some plateau. This is God's country, the little girl on a picnic table in Colorado said. This is God's country, John Winthrop said before he even set foot on these shores. I wonder if we truly have been that city on a hill that Winthrop called us to be. See, in the same sermon that Winthrop preached of oneness, he also backpedals a little bit, talking about God's preordained preordaining some people to be wealthy while other people are supposed to be poor. We have used that belief in God's blessing of us, some manifest destiny, some prosperity gospel. I deserve it because God willed it. I deserve it because I earned it. We've used this rhetoric to destroy cultures and to colonize. We have washed our hands of the sins of the past, much like Pilate. It was not our choice to enact injustice. That was the sin of our ancestors. We have beautiful hopes and dreams. As Winthrop did, as our founding fathers did, as our grandparents and parents before them did. And and we've been flawed kingdom builders, letting the sin of this world, sin wrapped in racism and greed and bigotry, blind us. The building of God's country is not finished. It did not end with the signing of the Declaration hundreds of years ago. No, that was the forming of a nation. 
Building God's kingdom is continual work. It is work that transcends borders and boundaries. For God's kingdom is poured out for all, not just the elect few. And Jesus reminds us, it is not the powerful who build the kingdom. We are the sowers in the field planting the mustard seed. We are the woman adding the yeast and kneading the dough. We are the merchant searching for the pearl. And we are the fishermen throwing out and casting our nets. We do this in our own humble ways. And we need to keep our eyes open to those everyday people often overlooked and ignored who are also going about the work of building God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a librarian who helps a little one fall in love with the magic of reading. The kingdom of heaven is like a public servant making justice and access, sure justice and access is given to all people. The kingdom of heaven is like the voices and feet of protesters and advocates demanding change. The kingdom of heaven is like a little child whose unbound joy reminds us of the sweetness of this life that God has given us. The kingdom of heaven is like a table that is made longer so that all can be fed. What ways are you called to build God's kingdom? Whatever they are, I pray that you feel God working with you as you do that holy work. And know that in doing so, we are all builders of God's country. Amen. <laughs>